a professor in a renowned university, visited a family friend who was in hospital, and she was dying. He sat there for a while and in silence, and eventually he said to her, so I guess this is it. And she responded weakly, no, this is merely the beginning of a new life in heaven for me. The professor, who of course was not a Christian, said to her, well, what does heaven mean to you? And she responded, I read in my Bible that it has a street of gold. And there is a river flowing from the throne of God. And there is a garden with trees and the leaves are for the healing. And I will be healed. And he smirked a bit and said to her, is that what heaven means to you? And there was a pause, a very long pause. And with eyes closed, she whispered to him, Heaven is where Jesus is. That is what heaven means to me. We do not always think on the subject of heaven. But it is a subject that must preoccupy us because the scriptures speak much of it. And in the passage that was read in Revelation chapter 19, heaven is at the fore. It is a central and dominant theme in this passage. The book of Revelation was written to believers in the first century who were facing and battling two enemies. They were battling enemies within the church, those who were teaching corrupt doctrine, given to licentious and immoral lies. On the other hand, they were being persecuted by the larger society, and particularly by the Roman government. And the book of Revelation, Apocalypse, Revelation simply means unveiling, or rather Apocalypse simply means unveiling, revealing. The Apocalypse of John is the revelation of John. John on the Isle of Patmos, exiled for his faith, receives visions from God. And these are visions in which God communicated to John that despite the hostility of the world against the church, that God ultimately is sovereign and that he rules. That even though they are under the emperor and Caesar vaunts himself as God Almighty, that there is one true king and that king is God himself. And that he rules over the affairs of men. And that he will indeed hold men accountable. And that is why you find that the book of Revelation is driven essentially by three rounds of judgment. Three series of judgment beginning with the seven seals in chapters 6 to 8. 
the seven trumpets in chapters 8 to 11, and the seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16. There is also the seven significant signs that are found in chapters 13 and 14. But chapter 19 falls within the penultimate section of the book of Revelation. It is essentially a section that runs from chapter 17 and ends in chapter 20, which narrates the triumph of God over his enemies, and particularly over Rome. In chapter 19, the first section ends in verse 5. There is the first vision, and what John sees is a heavenly host. He hears a heavenly host praising God with a hallelujah chorus, saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Why are they singing hallelujah to the Lord? Well, the hallelujah they're singing is in direct response to the command given in chapter 18 and verse 20. Because in chapter 18, God finally brings Babylon to justice. God finally destroys the wicked. And there is a command, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And so in chapter 19, this call to rejoice and to praise is now echoed in heaven by a heavenly host. They are saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. And in verse 2, the rationale for their praise is given. They are praising God because of his greatness. They are praising God because of his judgment upon the harlot. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot. That is Babylon, or reference to Rome, the leading political power, who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on the blood of on avenging her the blood of his servants shed by her. So they're praising God for his judgment upon the harlot, upon Babylon, upon Rome, and also for vindicating his servants, those who were martyred. And in, earlier in the book of Revelation, there were those saints under the altar crying, how long? Now God has judged the harlot and vindicated the saints. And so there is praise to God, not only for his greatness, but for his judgment. And you see this note of praise again in verse 3. And again they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Is praising God then for his judgment. There is this vision of praise in heaven. But in verses 6 to 10, there is another vision, a vision in which the prophet, the seer John, hears the announcement of the marriage supper, the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verses 11 to 21, we have the end of the vision here where John sees the Lord Jesus Christ 
depicted as the great warrior, the, the divine warrior of the Old Testament, the mighty warrior, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, who comes to defeat his enemies. He's dressed in a robe of blood. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who will indeed judge and defeat his enemies. But what I want us to focus on is essentially what we find, that vision there in the middle of this passage, particularly there in verses 6 to 10, the vision of the marriage in heaven, the marriage of the Lamb. It is this vision that we want to, con- con- to, to reflect upon because it is a vision, a picture of heaven. The book of Revelation depicts heaven with different imageries. In chapter 21, heaven is depicted in glorious terms as the new Jerusalem. In chapter 22, heaven is viewed as regaining and re-entering into paradise. But here, heaven is viewed as a marriage and the marriage of the Lamb. What I want us to look at is to seek to tease out the ideas that are embedded in this image as it relates to heaven. And so what we're trying to answer is one simple question. What truth or truth does the writer convey by depicting the end of the age as a marriage supper of the Lamb? What does this image teach us about the life which is to come, the life of heaven? I want to suggest first that the marriage image, this imagery of the marriage supper of the Lamb, depicts heaven as a world of love. This expression, a world of love, comes from Jonathan Edward, perhaps the last and the best of the Puritans, who describes in his final sermon, after talking about love or charity and its fruits, he has this sermon on heaven is a world of love and I recommend that, that that's one sermon that every Christian should read and I'm suggesting that this reference, this imagery depicting heaven as a marriage supper is intended to remind us that heaven will be a world of love when we think of marriage we ought to think of love Because marriage is indeed a celebration of love. Now, I I know you can tell me people get married for all kinds of reasons. People get married to get papers to get into the country. They get married because they want to be secure. They may get married to somebody who has lots of money. And you may tell me all of that are reasons why people get married. But those are aberrations to true marriage. Genuine marriage is essentially a celebration of love. And the marriage supper of the Lamb, the picture of the end as being a marriage feast, is a picture that the world to come is a world of love. Scripture teaches us that God is love. And the God who is a fountain of love dwells in heaven. And it is to that world that we are going. 
But heaven is not only the dwelling of the Father, it is the dwelling of the Son, the Lamb, and he is the lover of his people. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus could refer to himself with marital imagery, for he refers to him, himself as the bridegroom. And so he would ask the disciples in Mark 2, 19-20, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they, they cannot fast. So he asked these people who talked about him and the folks who were eating, he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Why, why don't they fast? The question was asked. Well, he says the bridegroom is with them. And Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom. In Matthew 25, in the parable there of the five foolish virgins, Jesus is indeed intended to be the bridegroom. You see, the marital image of Christ referred to them in scripture as the bridegroom. But the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. One of those places where that becomes evident is in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Where Jesus speaking about, or Paul speaking about the relationship between him, himself, between Christ and the church. He says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The marriage between a man and his bride is a picture of Christ's marriage to his church, his bride. And here... John sees an announcement of a marriage, the messianic banquet, this marriage celebration. It's a celebration of intimacy and love. And you know, scripture hints that heaven will be a world of love. One can only think of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 13 when he talks about what will remain in the end. He says this, but now abide faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. That whatever conception that we have of heaven, we must recognize that heaven will be and is a world of love. You see, heaven is a world of love. Not only because God is love and dwells there, but because our Lord Jesus Christ is the lover of his people. When you begin to read here in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, as John brings greetings from the triune God, he brings greetings in verse 5, he says, from the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And then in this word of praise, he says, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Right there in the first chapter, he refers to Jesus as the one who loves us. And this term that he uses is, of course, in the present tense. It is a sustained love to him who loves us, who continues to love us, and will do so even into eternity. There is a fountain of love to be found in Christ. To him who loves us. This love is not only a sustained love because of the present tense. It is indeed a salvific love. A saving love. For John says to him who loved us and washed us or literally loosed us from our sins. 
He released us from our sins. The love that he has for us is not only a sustained love, it is a salvific, saving love. It is a love that loosed us from the shackles of our sins. It's a love that delivered us from our sins, that delivered us from the wrath of God. It's a liberating love. And then we notice that this love is not only a salvific love, it is a sacrificial love. To him who loved us and loosed us from our sins in his own blood. Heaven is a world of love. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has loosened us from our sins and he did so by the sacrifice of himself by his blood. And whenever you see blood in reference to Christ, it refers to his death. To him who loved us and loosed us, loosened us from our sins in his death or by his blood. It is because our Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross, took our punishment and bore it on the cross. That is why we have been released and delivered from sin and from judgment and from hell. The greatest manifestation of the love of Christ is seen in his outstretched arms on the cross, in taking the nail, in bearing the shame, and dying in the sinner's place. Heaven is a world of love because Christ is the lover of his people. It's interesting that later on in Revelation when Jesus has been adored in heaven, they adored him before displaying his love by shedding his blood. John hears a new song in heaven. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see, it is by his blood he redeemed us. But why did he shed his blood? Is it because of his love? And it is by his blood that not only did he redeem us, but by his blood he sanctifies us. And John could say in chapter 7, verse 14, when the angel said to him, who are these? And he said to them, to, to the angel, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The one who loved us and shed his blood for us Shed his blood to redeem us, but shed his blood also to sanctify us. He also shed his blood because of his love, not only to redeem and sanctify, but that we might have victory. And so we read in chapter 12, verse 11, And they overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, by standing upon the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives there. Heaven. The marriage feast depicts heaven as a world of love because Jesus demonstrated his love by dying for us, redeeming us, sanctifying us, and giving us victory over Satan. It's a world of love because this is not only where we will know the love of Christ, but where we will also exhibit love for Christ. In the book of Revelation, you see, it is not only that Christ loves his people, but that his people love him. For in Revelation chapter 2, 19, the church of Thyatira, though it is rebuked, they are commended by the Lord, I know your works, your love, 
your service, your faith, and your patience. Not only did they love each other, but they loved the Lord. And God's people are to love him. Christ demands the love of his people because he would say to the church in, in Ephesus, you're fallen from your love. You've turned away from your love. Your love has grown cold. You've departed from love. You see, he expects them to love him. But here we have a picture in chapter 19 of heaven pictured as a marriage feast. Because this is the consummation of love. This is now where the people of God come together and they are confronted and now they are in a relationship with the living Christ. There their hearts are open. Prior to this we have known his love in our hearts. Shared abroad in us by the spirit. But now we will know his love face to face. I think that this is what will happen in heaven. What the prophet Zephaniah saw. Where the Lord is in the midst and he rejoices over them with gladness. He quiets them with his love. He will rejoice over them with singing. There the Lord will pour out his love. And we will pour out our love to him. We will say, my beloved is mine and I am his. Heaven is a world of love. It is beyond imagination. Because in this world we sense something of the love of God in our hearts. There is a joy unspeakable and full of glory. To know that though we are unworthy worms, we are loved by Christ. And if we ever doubt it, the cross remains forever the unmovable sign of his love. But in this world we experience it, but dimly. We see dimly through a glass. But then face to face we shall know him even as we are known. Then when we see him. We shall know his love and we shall express our love. Heaven is a world of love. But the imagery before us tells us more of a life to come. This is an image of the marriage supper. Depicts heaven not only as a world of love, but depicts heaven as a world of perfection. A world of perfection. During the mid-18th century... John Wesley, who lived 1703 to 1791, and Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church, Methodist movement. In the mid-1800s, Wesley taught what some have now come to entitle as the doctrine of entire sanctification. He seemed to have believed that it was possible to arrive at a state in this life where we did not sin. He taught a form of perfectionism. And to a great extent, there were other movements like the holiness movements and the Pentecostal movement, the Missionary Alliance, Church of God, and so on, who were caught up in this teaching as to the fact that they believe we could live and reach a state where we were sinless. This teaching 
was short-lived. It faltered for two reasons. It faltered experientially. Because anyone who knows the true state of the heart knows that we are still sinners. We are saved by grace, but we still wrestle with sin within. We're never the people that we should be. And we say, like the Apostle Paul, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God. You see, we know that we never arrive at perfectionism. So this, this theory faltered on the basis, experientially, just not true. And it faltered biblically. Paul says, I have not yet arrived. I haven't been perfected. He's, he means, but I'm pressing on. There's no perfection in this world. And the person who declares him or herself perfect has now just become imperfect because they have lied. But the world to come is not only a world of love, but a world of perfection. How do, how do we see this? Well, let me just point out to you in verse 7, in the latter part of verse 7, after the angelic beings celebrate or the heavenly beings celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb which has arrived, there's a declaration that his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What the prophet sees is the bride of Christ, dressed in a wedding garment, made from fine linen, the, the garment worn by virgins. It is bright, it is clean, it is pure. She's dressed in a pure garment. That's a picture of the church in its purity, in its perfection. And heaven must be a world of perfection because that is where the perfect God lives. And Revelation and the Apostle John depicts the perfection of God with the designation of glory. When the Bible wants us to think of God as perfect, it uses glory. Because glory refers to the outshining of the character of God. It is the confluence of all the attributes of God shining in all its beauty. And you read in Revelation chapter 4, you see something of the glory of God. This depicted as seated upon his throne. And from him radiated light like jasper and sardis stone. There's a rainbow around the throne. In appearance like an emerald. You see God's perfection is seen by his glory. And in chapter 1 of Revelation. The glory of Jesus Christ is seen. And John hears a voice in heaven and he turns around and he sees the lamb. And he describes him. He describes him in several ways, one of which he says his, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. It's Christ depicted in heaven in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, in all of his purity, in all perfection. But the perfection of God and the perfection of Christ 
means that there will be a perfection of the people of God. Because one of the things that God has done when he saves us is that he imparts his nature to us. And here John sees the bride perfect. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. You see, heaven will be the unveiling of the church of believers in all our purity, loveliness, and perfection. Fine linen, purity. And you see, you know that heaven will be a world of perfection. Because John himself teaches us this. In chapter 21, verse 27, he says, But there shall be by no means enter into it, that is into heaven, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In heaven there will be nothing unclean or unholy, because it is the place where God dwells. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul teaches us, that it is the goal of Christ, the intent of Christ, that his church might be perfected. So in Ephesians chapter 5, in the passage that we husbands ought to know very well, but seem to only focus on the one before that, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And why did he give himself for her? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That it was the intent of Christ when he came to die for his church, to give to the church his spirit and to work within believers that he might one day present us to himself holy and without blemish, without stain, without sin. See, what we have here in Revelation, this marriage supper, the bride wearing white linen, is not entirely dissimilar to what we see today in our weddings. You will see a a bride on her way to be married, surrounded by her maid of honor and bridesmaid. And she's putting on the final touches. She's kept under wraps, in a sense. The bridegroom is not supposed to go and take a peek. And then she comes down the aisle in all of her ravishing beauty. There's an unveiling. She has been hidden away, tucked away, while the finishing touches are being put in place, are put in place, but now she's revealed. And to a large extent, that is what happens to the church. We, in a sense, are under wraps. God is working deeply and mysteriously in his church and in our lives. And from a human vantage point, it is very difficult to see the progress the church is making. One of the things we've got to do is to be very careful about how we criticize God's church. Because we really can't see how God works. 
We see the hand of God in small ways, but we can never fully understand the true extent of his work in the life of his people. We are under wraps. It's not very dissimilar, you know, to when you see construction that they, you know, they're going to put up a building and they put up all this fencing around it and they board up the place and you can't see what's going on. You hear noise and you hear hammering and so on, but you really can't see what's happening. And then the building, when it's finished, all of the wrapping is torn away and you see this magnificent, radiant building. So it is with you and with me, the bride of Christ. Christ is doing some deep work within us. He's chiseling out and he's sawing out and he's removing and replacing. You see, he's at work. And one day the church will be unveiled in its robe of righteousness. Perfection. Absolute perfection. Sinless. Bearing the full image of Jesus Christ. The intent of Christ is that we may be conformed. To his image. And in that day when the wraps are removed. We shall see him. And we shall be like him. Perfect. And glorious. Can you imagine? Never again to have a sinful thought. Never again to say. Oh I'm, I'm sorry I said that word. I wish I didn't say that. Never again to have a lustful thought. Or desire. You see, heaven, a world of love and a world of perfection. There's something else to say regarding this text. You notice in the passage here, it says in verse 8, it was granted to her, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It refers to the saints dressed in righteousness, which are, our righteous acts. I want to suggest to you that the righteousness in which we will be dressed on that great day, though it is called the righteous acts of the saints, is not our achievement. Why do I draw this conclusion? It is simply because of the language of the text. It says, and to her it was granted. It means that the righteous act, this white linen dress, clean and bright, that was given to her, is a gift of grace. To her it was granted. It's not hers. She didn't produce it. It was given. I sometimes think that this reference to this dress given is a throwback to Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Where we hear these words, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my soul exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What's the righteousness that we will wear when we stand in perfection before the Lord? I want to suggest to you that there will be two kinds of righteousness. First and foremost, we will be dressed with imputed righteousness. That is the righteousness that is Christ 
that he earned for us in his perfect life and in his obedient death. That all of us who are Christians, we are saved because we have first of all received righteousness from, from God as a gift. And that's the entire point of Romans chapter 5. In Adam all died, but in Christ all have been made alive. We received Adam's sin and we were made sinners. But we also received Christ's righteousness and have been justified. And so the righteousness in which we will be dressed in heaven is first that which we have, have received from Christ. It is imputed to us. It is credited to us. It is Christ's righteousness. But we also will be dressed in imparted righteousness. That is the righteousness which Christ works within us. And that's why it's called the righteous acts of the saints. You see, the righteousness that we perform are not ours. It is not us who work these things. It is God who works in us both to will and to do. And so the righteousness in which we stand is not only imputed but imparted because it is Christ who has worked within us a life of righteousness, a transformed life. Heaven, a world of love. And heaven, a world of perfection. Dressed in Christ's righteousness, the gift of his grace, and the righteousness that he has worked in us. But the imagery, this marriage imagery of the lamb, the marriage of the lamb, portrays heaven not only as a world of love and as a world of perfection, but as a world of joy. When you think of marriage and a marriage supper, you must think of untrammeled joy, unrestrained joy, untrammeled joy. When you think of marriage, you don't think in in funeral terms. When you think of a marriage celebration, you think of festivity, you think of pleasure, you think of delight and joy and laughter. Marriage is a happy thing. And in fact, that is in referring to the world to come as a marriage. It is it's intended to connote this idea of happiness. Of happiness. You know, in ancient Israel, marriage began with a betrothal. And a betrothal was different from our engagement. When two people were betrothed in, the, in ancient Israel... It was a solemn engagement, a solemn affair, because it was done before witnesses. Pledges and commitments were made by the two parties. And there was a blessing pronounced, and that is why a betrothal in the first century was seen as married. People were, when you were betrothed, you were seen as married, and for you to break that, you had to get a divorce. The only difference between real marriage as we would see that is that the two people were betrothed did not enter into sexual, sexual relations. But for all intents and purposes, to be betrothed was to be married. And what would happen is that after the betrothal, there would be a time when the, bride, the bridegroom would come up with a dowry. The dowry was money that was paid. And by the way, can I just be clear here? Dowries in the first century and in ancient Israel was not a way of buying somebody. 
The man didn't buy his wife. And the parents didn't sell their daughter. The dowry wasn't selling the person. It was sort of a, an insurance policy for the wife. You know that because if you remember the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, when they complained about their father, what did they say? He is eating our money. That is our dowry. The dowry was given to the father to be kept for the daughter. Just in case something happens to the new husband. Let's say he died, had children. Well, he had given the father 50 cows. This 50 cows will be used now to care for the daughter who is a new widow. So it wasn't for the father to take and have and eat. He wasn't selling his daughter. And so in, in the ancient time, there would be this betrothal. Then there would be the dowry would be paid. And on the day of the wedding, the bridegroom would go for the bride. It wasn't the, the bride now walking the aisle coming to the husband. The husband actually goes and gets his bride. And he goes with, with, his, with his best friends. And there's celebration. There is singing. That's one of the reasons why in Matthew 25, the cry said the bridegroom comes. Well, where is he? what does the Lord say the bridegroom comes? Well, he's coming to the home of the bride. And she's asked to come out and meet him. And that's what she does in, 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 in those ancient weddings. She comes out to the bridegroom and he takes her off to his home or to his father's or parents' home. And then they have celebration. And it's not a one-night thing. It's seven days. Seven days of celebration. We see marriage was a joyous occasion. And in the passage before us, we see that the world to come is a world of joy. In verse 7, hear the cry, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. You see, it is a world of joy. If you go down to verse 9, you see the same note of joy where the angel says to me, write, Blessed, that is supremely happy, are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these things are the true saying of God. Why? Why is the world to come depicted as a marriage feast? It is because the world to come is a world of joy. Essential to the life to come. It's an antithesis to a world of violence and judgment. And why is the world to come a world of joy? First and foremost, because there is the absence of everything that distresses. You see, God will reign without opposition. God has put down his enemies. Revelation 21 verses 4 and 5 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. The world to come is a world of joy because nothing that causes pain will be present in heaven. There will be no crying. There will be no death. There will be no evil. 
there will be no Satan. There will be no sin. And sin is at the heart of our misery. You see, you see heaven is a world of joy because there's nothing to cause us distress. Heaven is a world of joy because of the presence of everything that satisfies and promotes joy. You see something of this in, in, in chapter 7 of Revelation. Where John says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun strike upon them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd. He shall guide them to the fountain of water of life and shall wipe away every tear from their eye. So the lamb will feed them and the lamb will guide them. He will provide everything to delight them and to please them. And this joy will be an unceasing joy for there is no evil to corrupt the joy and there will be the, the presence of everything that satisfies the heart. The marriage supper of the lamb pictures heaven as a world of love, a world of perfection, and a world of joy. One of the complaints that is leveled against Christians is that Christians do not think. That seems to be a false claim. Unless something is wrong with us, we all think. I suggest that the problem with us is that we don't think biblically enough. If there's any problem with Christians is that we're thinking about the wrong things. And this passage here as it pictures heaven as a, as a banquet, as a marriage celebration, invites us to set our hearts first and foremost upon heaven. The Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, and so on, think on these things. The Apostle Paul tells the Colossians, set your minds on things above. And you and I must think more and more about heaven. That if we are to live joyful lives... We must think about what is to come. You see, this world is temporary. But that which is permanent is the world to come. This is our true home. And therefore, our hearts must be set first in heaven. We must think of this, this world as a world of love. A world in which we will comprehend with all the saints... What is the width and the length and the depth and the height? And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It's a world of love. It's a world of perfection. There we will be filled with the fullness of God. We will come to full maturity. To full perfection. It's a world of joy where we will be invited. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. May God help us to think more and more of heaven. Richard Baxter, the reformed pastor, would spend half a day or half an hour per day thinking about heaven. I would suggest to you that most of us don't spend 
half an hour a year thinking about heaven. But that's our home. A world of love. A world of perfection and a world of unceasing joy. Not only must we think and set our hearts upon heaven, we must prepare ourselves for heaven. John saw the bride of Christ. She has made herself, he said, herself ready. And we must make ourselves ready. We must not only think of heaven, we must make ourselves ready for heaven. And how do we do that? How do we get ready for heaven? We must hear and respond to the invitation to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. John says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the perfect participle. We have received the effective call of God. We have received a call from heaven that says, there is a celebration, an eternal celebration to come. There is joy unspeakable and full of glory that awaits you. And you and I are called to come to this marriage supper. God calls you to a marriage feast. A feast on good things. A feast in the presence of Christ. But you are to come. And how do you come? You come in contrition and humility. You come in repentance and faith in Christ. You, you must endeavor that whatever happens, you enter this narrow way that leads to heaven and leads to life. How do, you, how do you come to this world of love and perfection and joy? You come to Christ. You come in faith to him. And you must live righteously if you prepare for this world. You must break off your sins. You must take on the righteousness which Christ gives as a gift. And you must depend upon his spirit to walk in the ways of righteousness. And finally, my friends, this passage would have us worship the Lord of heaven. Yes, set our hearts upon heaven. Prepare for heaven. But worship the Lord of heaven. You see, after all his vision, John fell down at the feet of the angel in verse 10. And the angel rebuked him. See that you do not do that. Don't do it, he says. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. How do we live now? We live by worshiping God. By praising him. We do not worship the beast or the world or sin. But we worship the lamb by in loud hallelujahs. By continually saying hallelujah to the lamb. Hallelujah which means praise the Lord. How do we live? We live in holiness. We live in praise. Because you see, we have something for which to praise God. Heaven is a world of love. Where we will know and experience God's love. And express our love to him. Heaven is a world of absolute perfection. And heaven, a world of joy.